0: James chapter number one, all right? Let's go ahead and stand together. And and I'm really, uh, we're getting into December. Gift giving and emphasizing gifts, talking about gifts. We were thankful uh, in this month of November. And you understand, we we don't want to designate it just to that time frame. But I want us to, to see some things here I believe could help all of us in our journey of experiencing God. James tells us in James 1 and verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, diverse, different temptations, and that is trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So through the trials, he's trying your faith. And what is the purpose of that? It's to produce patience. It's to produce a staying power. Verse 4 In order for this to work, it says, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect, that is mature, entire, wanting or lacking nothing. But God doesn't leave us on our own. He says, If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let them ask in faith. Do you all have Bibles there, young ladies? Do you have your Bibles? Can you hold them up in the air? Let me see. Everyone got your Bible? All right, okay, good. All right, look at it. You're looking around. I want to make sure you're following along. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and toss. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now, so he's, James is talking about, we went through this series in James. He's trying to produce maturity. He wants God's people when they're born, he compares us to being infants, newborn baby. We have some around here, and and we're going to have some more. and and a, and a little baby is is cute and wonderful, but three years, four years later, still acting the same way as they were, did when they were one month and two months. It's not cute. And James is saying, I'm trying to show you what God's plan is to produce maturity, how he can mature us. And he does it by sending trials and tests. Anyone who's involved in exercising of any kind, weightlifting, exercising, you understand resistance is part of the growing, the maturing health-wise. And God uses trials to mature us. And that trying is to go after our faith. Our faith in him is to build that muscle of confidence in him. But he says, that, but in order for it to work, you've got to cooperate. You've got to cooperate with God's will. You've got to cooperate with God's plan. Let patience have her perfect work. Why? So that you'd be mature. That you wouldn't have any lack or, 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 or missing something in this journey with God. But he says, and you struggle, you, you don't understand, ask God. He will give you the answer you need. He, he, will give, he will give and he'll not get on to you for asking him. He'll, he'll not say, why are you bothering me? He, he won't be agitated and he'll give liberally and, and he won't chide you for. It. But you've got to ask in faith. You, you can't say this kind of Christian prayer of God if you're there. You know, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so he says, you've got to ask in faith and don't be double-minded. Don't, don't, I think he can, he probably won't. No, you need to come to God absolutely convinced. You're going to pray for rain, bring an umbrella. That's what he said, be absolutely convinced. All right, he's talking about trials. Now go down to verse number 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, trials. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, verse 13, when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now he switched from trials to a temptation. He, he was, he's gone from testings, now he's dealing with another aspect in the Christian's maturing process, and that is temptation. And um, temptation that can get us into sin. And so he says, verse number 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Everyone is going to have trials. Everyone will be tested. God doesn't put us through temptations to sin. God will put us through trials to succeed. But if you don't cooperate in God's school, you don't pass his test, you will take him again. And the danger for many a Christian is that, as Dr. Childs alluded to, we can become familiar with terms and we can become familiar with the routine and the motion, that we lose the reality. And what will happen is trials that God is using in our life, in God's gym and God's school of training, those trials can turn into temptation. And so this evening, I want us to think about and get some help again from James on how to keep your trial from turning into a temptation. Or what is God's solution for your sin problem? Because that's what James is getting to. God is not trying to trip you. God is trying to exalt you. James 4, he talks about that. You humble yourself, he will lift you up. Peter's going to get to that as well in chapter 5. But if we don't cooperate the right way with the trials, they'll turn into temptation. And if we don't understand that aspect as we should and get off of that, it'll lead us to sin. And so let's look tonight here a little bit time that we have keeping the trial from becoming a temptation. God's solution to my sin problem. Thank you. Please be seated. How can we keep the trials we must face from becoming a temptation that we should avoid? We're trying too often to avoid the trial and we're trying to embrace the temptation. But we ought to cooperate with God's trying And avoid temptation. When we feel overwhelmed, if you're on the edge with all the demands that you're facing maybe classes, if you're in school, schedules, your instruments, work, homework, ministry, discipleship, fellowship, work, work, work. You have no spare time in your days, no margin seemingly in your life. And then you find out things that maybe are irritations. Someone was careless. With your stuff Someone was careless with your time Someone borrowed something and didn't return it Or they borrowed your vehicle And they left it on empty They lost your book They damaged your computer And the list could go on Several things could happen That could cause just enough added pressure To cause you to harbor Bent up frustration Just ready to explode But then you stop and you think Well wait a minute Is God testing me to see whether I will blow up? Is God increasing the pressure to see if I will crack? Is God putting me through this to see how I will respond? Notice in verse 16, I went over it really fast, but verse 16 is a very key verse, I believe, in this chapter. Do not err, do not err, my beloved brethren. And what he's saying here is don't be deceived. Do not go astray. Don't wonder. We've said before, don't drift. Drifting never gets you closer to God. Drifting takes you further away from God. See, one of the enemy's tricks is to convince you that your father, your heavenly father, is holding out on you. That he doesn't really love you. He doesn't care for you. He's holding out on you, from you, the very best. Can you remember him doing that with Eve? When Satan approached Eve, he suggested that if God really loved her, he would permit her to eat of the forbidden tree. When Satan tempted Jesus, he raised the question of hunger. If your father loves you, why are you hungry? And if he will do that with the first creation, if he'll do that with the Lord Jesus Christ who defeated Satan, why? do you think he's not going to try it with you? So how can we guard ourselves from allowing sin to conceive and take up residence? How can we protect ourselves from the process that James speaks of in verse 13, 14, and 15? Well, he gives us four dynamics. And I want us to look at these here, and I think Brother Jerry will have these four points on the screen. Number one, if you don't want your trial to become a temptation, and if you want to find God's solution to your sin problem, then number one, be convinced that God only has good in mind with each and every trial he brings into your life. I'm not saying know it, I'm saying be convinced of it. Be convinced there is not one trial that you face Excuse me, like a bug flew in my mouth here. And uh, I think it's a trial there for sure. <laughs> Be convinced that, that God has only good in mind. Be convinced of it. The Holy Spirit is the great convictor, convincer. He's convincing us, and and so James is going to, to help us see this, that we need to hang on to the conviction that God is doing something good in your life. No matter the trial, no matter the trial, no matter the difficulty, you must start with the conviction that everything about God is absolutely good, totally good. Holy good, nothing but good. Notice verse 16. Do not err, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Notice verse 18. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What he's saying here is that everything that God is doing in your life is good. Everything that, everything that God is doing is good. Can only be good. He is only thinking of what good and perfect gifts he can give you. You've never faced a situation. You've never faced a trial. You've never faced a day in your life, but what you have a father, if you're saved, who is thinking only of what is good and perfect and what those good and perfect gifts are that he can give you. See, the goodness of God is an excellent barrier against yielding to temptation. That was Joseph's. That was his response. Joseph, when he was tempted, he was tempted to sin with Potiphar's wife. You know what he relied upon? How good God has been to him. All that God has given to him, all that the master had given to him, he didn't look at what he did not have. He looked first at all that he did have. See, an excellent barrier to yielding to temptation is the goodness of God. Since God is good, we don't need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. Joseph and Jesus both teach us that it's better to be hungry in God's will than to be full outside of God's will. See, once you start to doubt God's goodness, you'll be attracted to Satan's offers. And the natural desires within will reach out for Satan's bait. Moses warned Israel not to forget God's goodness when they began to enjoy the blessings of the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 10 through 15. Remember, God gives only good gifts. All that is good in our lives come from God. God is good. And he alone is absolutely good. Far from being the source of temptation to do evil, God is the source of all that is good. See, James draws a comparison between the things that originate from Satan and those that come from God. Notice in verse number 13, let no man say when he is tempted, solicited to sin. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. He said, You can't say that because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither he, uh, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. Don't Be deceived, verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So he draws a comparison between the things that come from God and the things that come from Satan. Not of God, he says. In verse 14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Lust, tempted, sin, and death. These four things do not come from God. Lusting, temptation, Sin and death, all there in verse 14 and 15. See, we think of sin, if I were to ask you what is sin, we think of sin as a single act. But God recognizes sin to be a process. Adam committed one act of sin, and yet one act of sin has a process that continues to this very day. Because sin, it brought death and judgment on the whole human race. And James describes this process of sin in these four stages. First, it's lust or desire, verse 14. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own, say the word, lust. The word lust means any kind of a desire, not necessarily sexual passions. He's referring to just normal desires of life that were given to us by God. And in and of themselves, they may not be sinful. Without these desires, we couldn't function. Satan approached Jesus based upon just natural desire, hunger, thirst, and But so he works here off of our desire. When desire kicks in, we have minimized the fact that our God is good to us all the time. And all the time he's good to me, our desire becomes elevated. Desire, whatever we lack. And so it goes from desire to deception. Notice in verse 14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. And enticed, enticed, there's deception. See, no temptation appears as a temptation. Not too many people say, hey, there's a temptation right there. No, Satan's whole goal is you don't recognize it's a temptation. It always seems more alluring than it really is. So James uses two illustrations from the world of sports to prove his point. Notice what he says. He says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed. The idea, drawn away, is the idea of baiting a trap. And enticed, it means to bait a hook. And so here he uses the hunter and a fisherman who use bait to attract and catch their prey. No animal is deliberately going to step into a trap and no fish will willingly, knowingly bite a naked hook. The idea is to hide the trap, bait the hook. See, temptation always carries with it some bait that appeals to our natural desires. The bait not only attracts us, but the bait, Satan's bait, it hides the fact that yielding to the desire will eventually bring sorrow and punishment. Everyone who's been out deer hunting have used this same concept. No one has, has put their rifle out there and put a spotlight on it and put an arrow for the deer to step right there. And neither does Satan. But he's using an enticement. He's using a baiting because not only does it it, it, it attract us because of that which is lacking a real desire for uh, being wanted or friendship or uh, intimacy or or uh, recognition, whatever it may be. He's going to use that, but he's going to bait what he's doing and he's going to not only use it to attract you, but also camouflage and hide the fact this is going to be painful for you. Lot would have never moved to Sodom. Lot was not spiritual. He was an immature Christian. Very immature. He would have never moved to Sodom had he not seen the bait. What did he see? It looked like the well watered plains of Egypt. It looked good. And that's all he needed. But it looked so good that he didn't see he's going to lose his wife and his family. He paid a terrible price because he nibbled at the bait. When David looked on his neighbor's wife, he would have never committed adultery had he seen the consequences. But he was blinded by the consequences he was blinded to the consequences by what he saw as beauty. Beauty is vain. It's empty. Oh, there is appeal to sin, but it blinds us to the devastation. He, I don't believe he would have gone through with it had he saw he's going to have sorrow in the death of a newborn, the murder of a brave soldier, the violation of a daughter, But the bait keeps us from seeing the consequences. Not only does it start with the desire, not only does it lead to deception, but then it takes us to disobedience, verse 15. Then when lust, desire, hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Disobedience. See, James is moved from emotions, desire, and the intellect of deception To now the will. I think I'm going to nibble at it. I think I'm going to go through with it. I think I'm going to, I don't think anybody really sees. I don't think it's going to harm anything. See, James now changes the picture from hunting and fishing to the birth of a baby. He says, desire conceives a method for taking the bait. The sin, or excuse me, the will approves and acts and the result is sin. See, whether you feel like it or not, you're hooked and you're trapped when with your own will you choose to say yes to sin. The baby's born. It may be a matter of time until it matures. Why is it that immature Christians easily fall into sin? Have you ever thought about it? Immature Christians are very predictable. So are mature Christians. I don't have to wonder if Doctor Childs is going to be here or not. Even when he doesn't feel good, he's going to be here. I mean, he was—he was hard to deal with during COVID. I kept saying, I don't, "I don't think you can come." We were trying to follow these rules, and you—you you tried telling him no. And maturity is predictable. Maturity is going to do right. Do right till the stars fall, Dr. Bob Sr. used to say. But immaturity is predictable. What is, why do immature Christians so easily fall into sin? It's because they let their feelings make their decisions. I just don't feel like getting up this early. And I got to be at Sunday school at 915. I don't think I can make it a whole hour and 15 minutes earlier to men's prayer. I don't think I can get out of bed much earlier. I'm about to die as it is. Hey, you want to go to the mountains? You want to go to the beach? You want to go to the game? You want to go to, oh yeah, what time do you have to get up? 3 a.m. No problem, we can do it. Hook up the trailer. Load up the vehicles. Immaturity. The truth is, you do what you want to do. It leads then to desire, leads to deception, leads to disobedience, leads to, verse 15, death. Death. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it always brings forth death. Disobedience gives birth to death, not life. No one disobeys and has the life of God. That's why some people can, can spend time with God and, and just feel like, well, this doesn't work. There's nothing. Well, it's because you're living in disobedience, you're not experiencing life. And, and so it always results, it may take years for the sin to mature, but when it does, it always results in death. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said there will be death. Did they die immediately? Yes. Just not physically. They died immediately in separation from God that resulted in physical death. It's not cancer that has taken people in our church family It's the sin, it's the curse of the sin that killed him, put him in a grave. It is sin that came from Adam. It might come through various ways, but it is sin. It's not the, the, the bad cancer, it is sin that put Jesus on the cross and death, physical death is a result of it. That's why we need something far greater than physical death physical life. We need eternal life because if you don't have eternal life, you'll have an eternal death, separation from God. But even God's people, every time we sin, there's separation and fellowship with God. That's why we must repent. The the shortcut is repent. Get back to him. But that's the process of sin. That's always of the devil. Always. The devil does nothing but rob you of life. That's why I can walk into the school with the, in, with the young people. I can take two sniffs and I can tell you whether they're on or not. And I don't even live with them. You know why? Because there's no life. They're in disobedience. And I can tell you, that didn't come from God. It came from Satan. And so it's my privilege and responsibility to help you as parents, to help your young people see being in a school, a Christian school, you can go straight to hell just like Judas did. You can go right to Sodom and Gomorrah just like Lot did. But you're not gonna get there without somebody telling you God loves you, he's for you, he's a good God. And so he contrasts what Satan does, what is never of God, and that is desire and deception and disobedience and death. And then he talks about verse 17 and 18, what is always of God. Notice what is always of God, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is always of God. Did you notice the words good, gift, perfect, above, lights, and first fruits. These are life words rather than death vocabulary. See, God loves us and desires what is best for us. It's the character of God to give. James 1 and verse 5 God gives wisdom. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave. Romans six twenty three. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians two eight. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Matthew chapter seven and verse seven. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Luke 11 and verse 13, if ye then being evil as a human parent know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Romans eight thirty two. he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give? Give us all things. Job 1 and verse 2 Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 37 and verse 4 Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall Give thee the desires of thine heart. Psalm 84 and verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will the Lord withhold from those that walk uprightly because the Lord is good. He delights in giving good gifts to those who trust him. And the Bible contains story after story after story of how God has blessed those who would trust and obey him. The biblical promises of the blessing of God are literally innumerable. See, he gives different kinds of gifts, he says. Notice in verse number uh, 17, he talks about good gifts and perfect gifts. Good gifts, what are they? They're the expensive ones. Superlative ones is what he's talking about. Good gifts. He's got more resources than anybody you know. He has things money could never buy. But he says perfect gifts. I love this. What does he refer to as perfect gifts? You know what he means by perfect? He's referring to those that uniquely suit you. They were chosen especially with you in mind, regardless of the ministry, regardless of the stalled ministry, regardless of losing motivation with your instruments and your lessons, regardless of an overloaded schedule, regardless of a prolonged singleness. Regardless of a stale marriage, God still gives good gifts and perfect gifts. Yes, absolutely. That's the father that you have. Everything God does is good. good. Verse 17b, the second part of the verse, everything he does is good. It's full of light and joy. He's the father of lights. He's the creator of light. He lives in the light. Everything about him is bright out in the open. Nothing is ever going to interfere with that good and perfect light coming to you. There's no shifting shadows. There's no clouds getting in the way, blocking the light from you, causing shadows or uncertainties about his good intentions. No, he is light. In him is no darkness at all. Don't ever let yourself be deceived. Don't you let yourself be deceived that's what he says verse 16 don't you err don't be deceived your God loves you he's passionately joyfully incredibly in love with you every thought he has towards you is good whatever's happening in your life there's something very good that's going on that he's working in you the proof of his incredible love is verse 18 Notice he says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. The proof of his incredible love is that he begat, he, listen, chose you for himself. To give you eternal life with him, he chose you to be a part of his family forever. What's the first fruits? He talks about this that we would be a kind of first fruits, verse 18. Well, a first fruit is the one most eagerly awaited, the one most specially chosen. So, what he's saying is, he chose you to be the pinnacle of all of his creation. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. That's the overwhelming glory he has planned for you. His love, incredible love, nothing but good. You got to keep going. I want you to see a second thought. So number one, be convinced that whatever is happening in your life, God only has good in mind. Number two, I'll try to go faster. This will go by a lot faster. Number two, notice, let me read verse 19 and 20, then I'll give you the point. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, verse 19, you see this? Are you with me? Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Number one, be convinced that whatever's happening in your life, God only has good in mind. Number two, find out what that good might be that he's doing. Give thought to what that good might be that God is up to. No, there should be a lot more amens there. If you know he's up to good, then don't drift away. Draw near to him. Resist any thought of becoming frustrated or angry with God. Instead, look for what the good is that he may be doing. Don't give in to frustration. Don't give in to the anger towards God. Take charge. Actively search for the good that he's doing. Now, I don't want to be presumptuous, I don't want to assume I've, I've got it all, but what I'm doing is I'm looking for God. It's what our year's been about. I'm looking to experience and cooperate with him. See, ask him to show you what he's up to. He's up to something. Guard yourself from any impatience or complaints against him. I think if I were to boil down verse 19 and 20, that's what I would say. Guard yourself from any impatience or complaints against him. And so this, this give thought to what God may be doing and what good that he may be up to. I think we could say it this way. Based upon verse, six, uh, verse 19. Be quick to listen to whatever wisdom God gives you. I tell our kids, you have two ears and one mouth, so let's work that, that ratio. Listen. Listen for God. Be quick to listen and then be slow to complain. Why get frustrated with God? James 1.19 is a great, great verse for us all. We ought to be praying, Father... Show me what you're doing with my ministry. I'm trusting myself to your hands. Lord, show me what you're trying to teach me about handling my schedule instead of being overwhelmed by it. Father, you know my desire to be married. Give me some idea of your plans for me to be satisfied with you. See, be quick to listen. Slow to complain. Slow to become angry. Number three. Didn't we get through that one faster? More amens, we'll get through this one even more fast. More fast, faster. Number three, look at verse 21. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. But notice the first part. Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Number three, if the temptation does start to arise, in other words, the trial, experiencing God, his trying, building up your faith, you you enter into temptation and you sense it's starting to rise. Number three, recognize what's causing it. Stop and see what's causing this. I've shifted gears. I've gone from... Who God is and what God does. He is good. He can only do good. Now I'm going over into temptation. What's causing that? And I'm going to give you the answer to that. Pin down the source of my temptation. It's always, you ready for it? It's always, you ready? It's always self. Amen. To be more pointed, it's self-centeredness. Yeah. Amen. Now I know self is my problem but it's self-centeredness that's causing it. So identify this evil that's still so prevalent in each of us and then let's reject it. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Kenneth Weiss said of this verse, he says, let him disregard his own interest. Anyone who has children? You will hear say, but I want what I want. I don't don't want that. I want this. But that's what we do. I don't want this one, John. I want this one instead. And what it is, is it's us not dealing with self. Philip Yancey said, I've become more convinced than than ever that God finds ways to communicate with those who truly seek Him, especially when we lower the volume of the surrounding static. Yancey talks about reading the account of a spiritual seeker who interrupted a busy life to spend a few days in a monastery. And, um, And as he read the story, the... The host there of the monastery said, I hope your stay is a blessed one, telling the seeker. And the monk showed the visitor to the cell, and then the monk followed up with, If you need anything, let us know, and we will teach you how to live without it. <laughs> See, when an evil self-centered desire saturates our minds, cast it down, send it away. Get rid of it. That's what he says in verse 21a. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, superfluity of naughtiness. Get rid of any moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Father, we could pray. My frustration over my career is because of my impatience or lack of trust. I don't like that. Lord, my anger over the computer of the the house and the kids or the missing shirt or keys is because I want people to think about me and to and for things to go my way. I don't want to do it another way. Lord, going after simply flesh gratification for myself without regard for what it's doing to another person or future relationships, God, that's evil. It's not right. So identify self-centeredness, the evil, and get rid of it. Number four, here's the last one. Look at verse 21. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness, superfluity of naughtiness. Now notice, here's the second part of this verse. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I love the word save there. He's, he's talking to saved people. So he's not talking about salvation from hell. He's talking about deliverance. And I'm thankful as a saved person, there's still deliverance to be found for all of us. Number four, come back to the safety and the power of the Word of God. Come back to the safety and power of the Word of God. God's all powerful Word's been planted in you. We saw this morning. It's designed to bring you deliverance in the trial and from the temptation. It's able to save your soul. Let the word of God guide you so that you can safely arrive at the goal that God has in mind for you. He says, receive with meekness. Accept the word that is planted in you, which can deliver you. Accept the word of God that says that God is in control. Accept God's truth, his word, whether when he speaks about your career or your schedule or your relationship, your status, single or married. Accept what the word of God says. Accept the word of God when it says what he, God, wants to do for you, in you, through you, what only God can do. Accept it. Accept it regarding your ministry. I believe every child of God ought to have a ministry. And we have some that that have been in full-time ministry here. And sometimes we may struggle when ministry changes. But the reality is you can embrace the truth of God's Word that teaches us that God is in control of my ministry, yea, my life. And that he's planned all of our days even before we were born. And all that he has prepared for us is nothing but good. So embrace it. Receive with meekness. Embrace that. Psalm 139 verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. What about my schedule? Embrace the word which says that God will never give you a schedule that is more than you can handle. Embrace it. Embrace the truth that no set of circumstances will ever come your way except what is common to human experience. Embrace that God's promises will never bring anything that is more than he knows you can manage. But he'll provide a way in which you can put your hand in his and move through the circumstances without sin or devastation. That's a Ingram translation of 1 Corinthians 10 13. How about marriage? Well, embrace the truth that marriage is good, but it can only be good when you follow God's rules of purity. Otherwise you forfeit God's goodness and you'll settle with God's judgment, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Embrace God's word. And don't err. Don't be deceived when you're going through a trial. Hang on to the conviction that God is doing something good in your life, number one. Number two, be quick to look for what that good might be. Number three, recognize that any temptation to sin comes from self-centeredness inside of you. Deal with it. Repent. Number four, humbly come to and embrace the Word of God. Open up its truth. Let it guide you safely through the trial to God's incredible reward for you. Let's stand together, please.